Welcome to another episode of TAG Infrastructure Talks podcast. I'm your host, Alan Poole. I'm a partner at Troutman Pepper, and I'm a vice president of the TAG Infrastructure Society. My guest today is Jeff Uphughes. He's a fellow board member of the Infrastructure Society and CEO of DC Blocks. Jeff, welcome and thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, to start off, tell us a little bit about your company, uh, what sets it apart from other data center companies, and maybe a little bit about how you got where you are today. Yeah, sure. So DC Blocks have been involved uh, for about six and a half years. I originally came in as a board member and then transitioned into the office of the CEO uh, early in 2017. The company was really set up with one vision in mind, and that was to go input data center infrastructure within underserved growing markets across the Southeast United States, which means what we do is we design, develop, own, and operate a fabric of these data centers and link them all together with network. And today we're having six that we have in place today uh, with a really robust roadmap to go put another half a dozen of them in over the course of the next two to three years. So the markets you're in, you said they're underserved. Um, t tell us what those markets are and, and how you chose them. Yeah, sure. So uh, anytime you look at data center infrastructure, uh, if you understand what's happening across the, mar across the United States, there's really about six markets where that's where a vast majority of computing infrastructure lives. That's your Ashburn, Virginia, that's your Dallas, Texas, it's Chicago, it's, at, it's uh, 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 Santa Clara, it's uh, Seattle or Hillsboro area, Hillsboro, Oregon, um, and you have these really large deployments of all the big hyperscalers, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Meta, Google, Oracle, and maybe uh, most of all the web apps that you find that are out there. But all the secondary markets, and some people used to keep Atlanta into that, but now Atlanta's kind of grown to one of those really growing emerging markets. All the infrastructure, uh, if you're a company based in Chattanooga, Tennessee, or one in Birmingham, Alabama, where we have a facility, or Huntsville, Alabama, or Greenville, South Carolina. Any of these markets, you had a choice to make. There was not really dedicated, modern data centers within those markets. So you either had to drive to go place your equipment in one of those mar previous markets I mentioned, or you had to build your own data centers. So markets like, call it Charleston and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, continually growing really, really fast. Markets like Greenville, South Carolina, there's 1.4 million people in the MSA with Greenville, Anderson, and Spartanburg. Birmingham's got 1.2 million people. Huntsville is now you know, almost a million people in the market. Chattanooga's about 700,000 when you take the MSAs. All these markets didn't have digital infrastructure assets like hardened data centers that are purpose built. And so we saw an opportunity and said, those markets need this too as does most markets. So when you think of the markets that I mentioned, Atlanta, we're here, Chattanooga, Huntsville, Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama, Greenville, South Carolina, now Myrtle Beach, soon to be a few other markets, including Charleston and a couple of other markets throughout the Southeast. So it's a good time for, uh, for us as we've been executing. There's a, there's a lot of exciting news about what you're doing in Myrtle Beach. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really important project for the Southeast. It's a really important project for us. Uh, DC Blocks is actually building a international cable landing station on the eastern seaboard in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. What this means for the Southeast and what it means for 
uh, DC Blocks and all of our partners that come into that facility is from Myrtle Beach, it will land international cables that come from other continents and those cables will then have an express route from Myrtle Beach directly into Atlanta to feed this growing hyperscale and uh, you know connectivity exchanges that are around uh, Atlanta and this whole region will just continually grow with more and more data center capacity. So it's exciting for us. We're building about uh, an 80,000 square foot facility with phase one and phase two. Uh, and those two phases house, you know, what will house roughly around 14 megawatts of capacity in that facility. How'd you choose Myrtle Beach? Well, Myrtle Beach wasn't chosen for us. I, I like to think that Myrtle Beach kind of won the uh, geography jackpot. <laughs> um, Myrtle Beach has got some really unique characteristics uh, versus other areas where cables land. So in the world of undersea cables, they've been around for almost 100 years. And during that time, there's really been five points up and down the eastern seaboard where a lot of these have collected. They collect in Miami, they collect in the Jacksonville area, they collect in obviously in New York, uh, in New Jersey. But there was a gap between where Miami meets New York. Myrtle Beach is almost halfway between it. But Myrtle Beach has something that's really unique. Number one, there's no barrier islands to mm. Myrtle Beach. Number two, it has a relatively low shelf that goes out uh, for a long period of time, which is really conducive to laying a cable in. Uh, number three, it doesn't have commercial wind farms or lots of commercial fishermen that can potentially drag up cables. So Myrtle Beach ended up being an ideal place for a cable to be landed. DC Blocks worked with some of the really large hyperscalers that are laying a lot of these cables to connect their cloud regions back to Myrtle Beach and into the southeast because it's growing here. So the first cable that's coming in is called Fermina and Fermina is connecting Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay and then branching into places like uh, the Caribbean. That'll take traffic from cloud apps and others from those continents directly into the southeast, pass up through Monk's Corner and Charleston, in through Augusta, and then all the way into Atlanta to all the cloud centers with our fiber network that we're building in conjunction with this cable landing station. So when you add those things together, Atlanta is gonna benefit from having multiple cables coming into Myrtle Beach that then drive capacity from continents directly into, uh, into the southeast. So it's a, it's a great time and exciting project for DC Blocks to work on. Yeah, that's, that's gonna be really, really exciting to see, to see how that bears fruit. When, when I saw that your company was uh, doing the, the dark fiber construction, I, I was interested because I, I had thought that some other players in the industry were moving away from getting outside of their, you know, I don't know if comfort zone is the right word, but you know, yeah. I'm thinking of how you know, Zayo sold off a lot of its colo assets and wanted to focus on fiber. What, what drove the decision to decide, you know, forget all the other fiber providers out there, we're gonna do this ourselves and control it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not something you jump into lightly. Um, you know, for us, uh, we have a lot of customers that use us for network already. Uh, part of our deployment when we chose our first market outside of Atlanta was Chattanooga. And we deployed fiber, uh, but we leased that fiber. We didn't build that fiber between Chattanooga and Atlanta. And over the course of the last five years, we've really been able to provide great services for cable companies, for other communication carriers, for enterprises, uh, for governments and others that 
I, I want to say got our toe wet, but you know, I've been in the network business for more than 30 years and you know, the full circle of network and data centers and others. So it was very familiar to us and we were operating in this exact environment as a operator, but not an owner. Taking the responsibility to then say, we know how to build systems. It's what me and many people on our team have done for decades. Taking that responsibility, building that, maintaining that, operating it and owning it is something that was really in our wheelhouse. So uh, for us, it was an easy step internally. Uh, you know, we partnered with another organization that had a lot of expertise in doing this. So we added members of the team that this is all that they have done where, you know, we've been not only in the fiber business and network business, uh, but the data center business. So we've got a specialty group that all they do is they just go out and build these, engineer these, ensure that we're getting the right permits, working with state and local governments and working with cities. And so for us, uh, it was a natural progression versus some of the competition you know, a lot have divested because uh, they said it's a competing asset. It takes a lot of capital to build these routes. It also takes a lot of capital to build data centers. But when you listen to your customers and you do what they tell and, and you do what they are telling you or asking you for, um, I think you can find a really, really great way to not only deliver a great service, but also provide some monetary value both for them and for your company in doing so. And so we made the choice and it's not going to be our last route that we're going to build. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, your perspective of how the data center market has changed. I think um, the types of customers have changed over the past five or ten years. Hyperscalers have become the norm rather than the exception. Um, what, what do you see? Is what implications do you see that having on the the, the the internet and data services as a whole? Well, when you when you look at the at the background or the history of data centers. Uh, data centers have been around a long time. It, it's, we've always had them, but people always were, I need to go build this to house my computers because they're moving into digital services on everything. Uh, you know, whether you're a law firm or whether you're a content company, uh, more and more services were, were creating demand within the data centers. Uh, that's how the data center industry got started. When you look at where the data center is now, based upon hyperscalers, as an operator, you really had a choice to make there's always going to be a need for somebody to co-locate your equipment with. Every market in the country will always be a need, uh, whether it's cities, counties, states that are bound by, by uh, you know, laws and regulations that they need to keep data in the state. Maybe it's by hospital systems or banks that say, hey, I really need to watch over this closer and I need to have it in my home market. Uh, but start thinking of all the apps that were born on the web to then where do they live? they live in the cloud companies. So whether it's Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Oracle, uh, Apple, uh, you know, a number of different ones you can you go out there. Data center operators either gravitated towards, I want to try to help them and help them house their equipment, or I'm going to try to carve out a niche that I can compete against them. So that's really where the data center industry went. So you have a lot of operators, data center operators, like some of the largest that are on the planet. You know, we, we know some of the ones that have just exited in the last few years. QTS, Cyrus One, uh, uh, CoreSight, uh, you know, they, th those are three. Switch, to add another one. Those were really, really large companies that were publicly held. They chose to do not only enterprise, but also to help serve some of the hyperscales and the growth. Hyperscalers are driving 80 plus percent of the growth of where things are. So you can carve out to go after the 20%, 
or you can solely go after the 80%, we in our markets, since we have some unique positions of being the only purpose-built data center that is owned from the ground up and just designed both to handle the enterprise and the hyperscaler, we find ourselves in a unique, unique position being able to service both. So for us, um, data center continues to keep evolving. Uh, there'll always be needs for it. Uh, Mark Atlanta. Atlanta's going to see a lot of more, a lot square footage coming into Atlanta uh, over the course of the next five to ten years. It's not slowing down. It's just speeding up, and it's because of some of the hyperscale growth. Just look at what Microsoft or others are doing here. <clears throat> Another thing that interests me is the idea of edge computing. The edge that was um, a really hot topic for a while. It seems to have, you know taking a back seat to some other things, but you're taking a close look, in, in, close look at it and it's figuring into your plans. What does edge computing mean to you and how important is it to your customers? Well, it's all about defining what the edge means. You know, for us, it's the edge means is where the application meets the network. And when you're in markets like what we are, you know, we first start with how do you have a data center that is hardened, that is good for all applications, whether it's hyperscale or enterprise. The second thing we do is we create connectivity exchanges within each market, where those connectivity exchanges are the centralized place where all content, all cloud, all carriers, all wireless, all enterprise and governments can connect through, that really creates that opportunity to exchange traffic. And then you have the applications from the hyperscalers that when do they come into these markets, or do they come into these markets? I have to admit to Alan, when we first started, uh, we, we had a hunch. We knew that the hyperscalers would come into markets like what I mentioned where we are. Uh, but we really didn't know when and we didn't know how. Hmm. We thought maybe it would come in from IoT devices. Okay. We thought maybe it would come in from small deployments that would come out of, of uh, uh, you know, a hyperscaler putting a, you know, maybe an availability zone within the market. Um, that hasn't been the case nearly of what we've seen from some content companies that said, I love your connectivity exchange, I want to serve those 1.4 million people or 1.2 million people in the markets. It's been more dominated by that, but now we're starting to see a shift. So this shift is all about the remaking of internet capacity across our nation. And the remaking of internet capacity across our nation, uh, I'm old enough that I was able to see the birthing of the first internet. Where did that first internet live? It lives in you know places like 56 Marietta Street here in Atlanta. You know everybody knows it by the address. You know it's owned by Digital Realty and Telex. Well, why that building? That building became a communications or connectivity exchange. It became that because all of the carriers, the UU Nets of the world, the XO Communications of the world, the WorldComs, the MCIs, the Verizons, the you know, Quest that was, you know, now called Lumen. All of these companies built the first internet and they had to have a place to terminate it. So they terminated it where their main points of presence were. As these hyperscalers have grown more and more and more traffic, they're looking at those, mar those, looking at those addresses like 56 Marietta Street or 350 Cermak in Chicago or uh, you know, one Wilshire in LA, or you know, you can name all these addresses. Uh, you know, knowing where the where the market is, those are starting to become sites that they tether to, hmm. not sites that they go primary to. And when you build network and you connect availability zones, 
from different care, you know, different uh, you know cloud companies. Mm -hmm. When you build these availability zones, they're in the markets I mentioned. They're in Chicago. They're in Dallas. They're in Atlanta. They're in Ashburn. They're in Columbus, Ohio. They're in they're in um, uh, you know Santa Clara. Super Bowl in, markets. Yeah, they are. They're <laughs> yeah. really massive markets. Or Phoenix. Well, what do they want to do? They want to tie those markets to where the other large markets are. In order to get through those, they have to pass a lot of these secondary markets. And when they do, those become network availability zones that they have to regenerate that traffic and allow that to pass through. So the core of the internet, whether we, uh, how we see it being made, how it was made in the first 30 years is now being made and in, in, in built into the eyes of how the hyperscalers want to route their own traffic. Because if you're generating 80% of the traffic across the world, I mean across the United States, that 80% of the traffic across the United States has to get to some of the major markets, which means you need high count fiber, you need conduit systems, you need the digital infrastructure that then enables everybody along the route to have access to these broadband services because you're building through those markets and you're enabling them to really start driving the applications that we've come to use and love every day. You mentioned the tie-ins there. Uh, earlier you mentioned that that's not just at the data center, but also with the ILA huts. Is, is, has that always been the case, or is that a new and developing uh, uh, trend? Well, ILA huts, uh, have, have everybody's seen one. Sure, yeah. uh, You know, they're at the base of a cell tower. Yeah. Uh, you know, you find them, uh, you know, along a route in a cornfield, and you say, well, what the heck is that over there? <laughs> um, you know, and they've typically been these places where they're, you know, not staffed, they're not manned, they're, they're you know, self-sufficient, uh, and it's closed up and covered, you know, in, in, in uh, uh, you know, covered by a, a fence and, you know, cameras and everything else. Those ILA huts now are mini data centers mm -hmm. that are enabling rural broadband in communities. So think about the infrastructure funds that are out there today. Right. Much, much of the infrastructure funds are going into, I need to build past homes, and I need to enable every home to have the access of broadband internet at high speed. It be, it's become a utility that everybody should have a right to have it. So when you're enabling that, and you're enabling communities that don't have access to really high quality internet services and really high quality bandwidth and applications, how are they gonna get them? They're not, unless they have access to tap into where those networks are. So the ILAs need to be a little bit more robust than what they were in the past. Because before, just the carriers owned them and they just passed traffic back and forth. Now it's become an on-ramp. It's an on-ramp to the cloud. It's an on-ramp to the applications that you love and see. It's an on-ramp to streaming services and OTTs or over-the-top services that you know people are using with Netflix or streaming of any type. So they become more important. When you're doing that, we call that enabling the hyperscale edge. Well, let's talk about the types of assets you're building now. It seems to me that it's a good time to be building new because my perception in the market is the hyperscalers want some seriously high quality stuff and uh, sometimes tuning up the old assets isn't all that easy. Well, there's a lot of data centers out there and the requirements of what uh, some of the larger hyperscalers have. Um, you know, I, I won't go into all of them specifically, what customers have, but the traditional data center that was built 15 years ago or 20 years ago, what was the basics of what that looked like? Many of those were put into shared office buildings mm -hmm. where you have floors above them and floors below them. 
Many of them went into strip centers or single-story uh, office parks where they would go in. There, there's no way to really fence these off and and you know secure them in ways that you know today's modern customer wants to have because there's lots of sensitive uh, data that is in these. Uh, a lot of them had shared walls with a tenant that was directly next to them. Uh, a lot of them said, I've got capacity issues that I don't have the capacity to put enough cooling because I can't put large enough condensers on the roof or where am I going to put the generators in the generators and the size of power that a lot of these have to, uh, have to need just to power their facilities. There's weight issues in multi-tenant buildings mm -hmm. that you have that you can't put. You have ceiling height of how you're going to extract the heat. What all this called for is it called for a purpose-built facility that allows you to scale and grow based upon the application demand for what customers are using. In the past, it was always you got away with giving somebody power to a cabinet for data center that was between two and four kW of power draw from any one cabinet. Today, I can tell you that almost every major client that we deal with, it's 19 kW, it's 10 kW, it's 15 kW, it's up to uh, you know, 34 kW, and some even higher depending upon the application. Also, the densities of what you're seeing on weight, because these servers and storage units are getting heavier and heavier, it required a purpose-built building. It also required that you have a really stringent SLA for uptime. So when you're dealing with a more discerning client that is making millions and billions of dollars, whether it's coming across a minute of downtime may cost them $100 million. You need to have a hardened tier three rated concurrently maintainable facility that can be protected and secured with the reliability that they know can operate just as if they're operating in the, themselves. So that's what DC Blocks builds. These are 10 inch thick insulated concrete, uh, you know, sustainable to handle either Cat 5 storms or F5 tornadoes that are hardened with setbacks that we really build to what is a TSSCI standard of, you know, top secret or, uh, you know, SC, which is, you know, controlled information uh, from, uh, uh, from building from a government standard. Another topic I wanted to discuss with you is financing. Um, the markets you're in, they're, they're secondary. Um, mm -hmm. Has that been difficult for investors or financiers to, to swallow or understand the upside? No, they're, they're understanding that when you have a owned real estate portfolio and you have really good, uh, you know, A-rated tenants that are within these, whether they be large enterprises, whether they're governments, whether they're universities, whether they're communication carriers, or whether they're the hyperscalers, it creates a financeable uh, structure for what you need. You know, we all know that, you know, when you're owning the dirt, you're owning more of your destiny rather than having 3% escalators year over year that are in an office building or something that you don't own. So financing these is always, um, it, it's, I wouldn't say it's difficult, uh, but there's an art to financing these and understanding, you know, how do you maintain and operate a good fiscal approach in your company, yet also a good uh, financial pro forma in uh, a financial return for these banks to lend you money. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty blessed in our financial sp sponsors and supporters we have. Uh, Bain Capital and Post Road Group uh, have been with the company for the last few years, Post Road for uh, since inception. And so our ability to finance these, you have to have really sound equity base in your company. You have to have a really sound base of investors. And you have to have really, really good tenants 
that have got the ability to pay long-term and securing long-term contracts with you is really important. Um, it's a capital intensive business, whether it's a fiber business or whether it's the data center business. And when you marry them both together, one can't live without the other. So how do you finance both uh, is still a little tricky, but DC Blocks is managing to do so in ways that have some great, uh, great lenders and great financial partners to help us along the way. Have you found that uh, the banks and other lenders have uh, gained a better understanding of the upside of digital infrastructure over the years? Well, the digital infrastructure market versus, let's say, the office market. Sure. Today. Um, in COVID, how many people came into the offices? <laughs> digital infrastructure, what did they do? They stayed at their house and not being in the office generated more content, more digitally, that where did it have to go? Had to go to data centers. So when you have long-term contracts of customers and data centers that are housing digital assets, it made it for a very, very robust uh, investment opportunity for many firms to say, let's move from more office environments, real estate, into more data centers. It also created, when you're owning the digital real estate and owning the land and others, it became somewhat of a downside risk protection of what you have for lenders, um, you know, knowing that you had a long-term tenant and knowing that you had owned assets that, uh, that help you grow. I wanted to you know, before we run out of time, I wanted to talk about your experience working with um, the state of South Carolina and its various local governments. Um, what were your positive experiences from that? And is there anything that the state of Georgia can learn to help facilitate further digital infrastructure development? Well, first and foremost, we're headquartered here in Atlanta, so it's always good to call Georgia home. Uh, I think that Georgia has led the way in some of the tax incentive bills uh, that they've helped uh, bring forward that abate certain portions of sales tax uh, and or abate uh, property tax. And by doing that over a period of time, to, it encourages infrastructure assets to deploy within your markets. So when you look at markets like South Carolina that didn't have nearly the amount of infrastructure, South Carolina was equally aggressive in doing it, although they treated it a little differently. They didn't have that, that abatement around sales tax and property tax. They have some different tax structures that uh, are more friendly in how they operate as a state, but they have been absolutely wonderful to deal with. South Carolina is a opportunity for DC blocks to help invest into the infrastructure that is needed across the state, not only with our fiber, but our data centers. And from the governor's office all the way through Secretary of Commerce and everybody there, um, they have been wonderful to, uh, to engage with and have been very, very helpful because they're looking at this as improvements in infrastructure across the state benefits everybody for which it's in. And here in Georgia, they've done much of the same thing. Perhaps explaining the significant investment in data centers in Atlanta and Atlanta being considered a competitor, competitor with the top data center market in the country, I suppose. Atlanta is on a really fast pace. Um, one of the reasons, I mean, there's many areas across the country that are running into power challenges. Mm. So uh, if you look at Dominion Power that is up in Ashburn, you know, some of the wait time now, and it depends on certain pieces of property and depends in areas, you have operators that could be waiting up to five years before they could get the committed power into there mm. just because they've consumed so much. And the power companies need to accelerate their build process. But when all the markets across the country are accelerating it, it puts a constraint on supply chain. 
sure. or things that you build future substations with or uh, or transformers of right. what you need or you know the UPS systems that live within a data center or the generators so that's putting a strain on 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 all the different areas but Atlanta is going to see a enormous amount of capacity that is both going to be built and consumed over the course of the next you know what I think is the next two to five years uh, you know because of some of the challenges that they're having in markets like Ashburn they'll get it corrected but it's an opportunity for Atlanta to continue to grow the south in general is growing look at how many people started migrating and leaving some of the northern states and coming down into markets like South Carolina North Carolina Georgia Alabama Florida uh, it bodes well uh, you know for the southeast add in Tennessee and add in other markets and you know, there's there's a lot of opportunity for continued investment in the data center, but Atlanta is looking really, really good uh, for the foreseeable future. Exciting. I, I hesitate to ask this, but I can't help it. Is digital infrastructure recession-proof? I don't think anything is recession-proof. Um, I, I do think that the digital infrastructure business um, goes through different uh, different phases. Right now, we're in a build phase to handle all the demand of what is being asked to place digital infrastructure in the southeast. Uh, adding that infrastructure in the southeast puts a problem on supply chain. You know, so when you think of the mode we're in right now, it is build, build, build. Eventually, that will catch up. When it catches up, that inventory needs to be consumed. A lot of it's being pre-built now sure. because everybody's had to look at it with supply chain being two years out before you do anything, you're, able, you're needing to forecast capacity and saying, I need to buy two years out, or I need to buy three years out, or I need to be committing four years out because they understand it's gonna be two years to build. And when you do that, what's gonna happen two years from now, or three years from now, or four years from now? Uh, is it recession proof? I don't think it's recession proof but it's a pretty good bet that for the foreseeable future, three, four, five years, uh, the amount of demand that is coming uh, will not have enough supply to handle it, which makes it operators like us put us in a good position to continue to keep building. To, to close, um, what do you see as the next big challenge in your business or your industry? It's really about bringing talent in and continuing to build this. We're really young in the data center business. I'm just not talking about DC blocks, but think about it. The internet was born 30 years ago. Now we're in the phase, second phase of data center development where it's cloud providers and just growing and growing and growing. Uh, many of the people who are leading the companies, including myself, um, it's not our first rodeo. So the challenge that I see that we have as an industry is to continually develop the talent that can be more or less a secession plan for how do you continue to grow this. So the people who are coming into this space, we need to train them, we need to empower them with knowledge, we need to empower them to say, come up with new fresh ideas, whether it's green energy technologies or whether it's better ways to uh, you know, engineer and design these data centers or operate them. That's the biggest challenge that I see, is how do you promote and how do you develop the next phase of leaders that are going to be needed to take this industry of data centers and networks to that next place, the next decade, the next two decades, the next three decades. That's what I look at. I look at, we've got a great team. 
but we also need to develop the people that go along with us because this isn't going to be a, you know this is not going to be uh, uh, something that's going to go away in two or three or four or ten years. It's going to continue to grow. Uh, Jeff, this has been a really enlightening and enjoyable experience talking with you. I thank you on behalf of uh, Troutman and, and TAG and we wish you the best of luck with your endeavors. Well, thank you very much. TAG is really important to uh, our whole community here and uh, it's important that people understand all the great things that are going on in the infrastructure business throughout the southeast and Atlanta. And thank you to you and thanks to TAG for allowing us to be a part of this session. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us out there for another episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to both TAG and Troutman Pepper on LinkedIn and on your uh, podcast viewing application of choice to stay up to date on all of our newest episodes. Copyright Troutman Pepper Hamilton Sanders LLP. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Pepper does not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including, without limitation, reproduction, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Pepper. If you have any questions, please contact us at Troutman.com.